Okay. So I uh, want to thank everybody for, uh, for coming again. Uh, I appreciate everybody's uh, patience these past couple of weeks when uh, things were a little bit uh, busy and hectic. So we were not able to, uh, uh, to meet, but uh, here we are. And also uh, at the, uh, the new time, I hope that the, uh, the new time will uh, remain uh, um, convenient or, uh, or uh, something which is not uh, too inconvenient for everybody to be able to, uh, to attend. So we are on, when we left off uh, a few weeks ago, we're on the third principle, uh, which had to do with the fact that God is not physical in any way, the principle of incorporeality. Don't ask me to say that even one time slowly, let alone 10 times fast. But uh, the fact that God does not have any shape, like we say in Yigdal, there's no body at Tuakarish Baruchu. And there's not even a way in which we can describe something which resembles a, a body, as uh, hopefully we'll talk about everything which we have uh, uh, in the Torah to this effect, are anthropomorphic references, but not something which is going to capture the actual essence of, of God. And we said, I think when we left off a few weeks ago, we said what this means is that by definition, uh, there cannot be such a thing as empirical proof of God's existence. That's something which by definition cannot exist because empirical proof is going to be something which can be weighed, something which could be measured, something which could be, uh, which is tangible in, in some way. And God's existence is outside of our three-dimensional universe. And therefore there's never going to be any sort of proof which we're going to be able to offer to, uh, to, uh, to the skeptic or to the non-believer of God's actual existence. But, uh, we said that our job isn't to prove God's existence empirically. We said our job is to go ahead and uh, to be a judge and not a lawyer. That was the phrase which, uh, which we used uh, a few weeks ago. A lawyer's job is to go ahead and argue his case on behalf of his client. Doesn't matter how strong the evidence is or not. Uh, what matters is the paycheck. And as long as the cl client continues to pay, so then you will continue to go ahead and argue as a lawyer, you will argue for your client's uh, benefit. Uh, a judge's job is to take all of the evidence presented and then reach a decision based on the weight of all of that evidence. The evidence points in this direction or the evidence points in this direction, but it's all going to be uh, determined or decided based on the weight of the evidence. So although we're not going to be able to prove the absolute existence of God, that's something which is impossible because he does exist in the universe. Uh, as we said, there's all sorts of evidence of, the, of God's existence and the, uh, the plan and purpose of the universe itself indicates to us in all sorts of sort of anomalies which exist indicate that, uh, that there is a being out there which went ahead and planned this very precisely and very, uh, and very carefully. Now that it's getting cold outside, I could talk about cold without being, uh, <laughs> being accused of being somebody who, uh, who loves the cold. Um, so just the way that water freezes is, uh, is an interesting scientific thing that generally cold water uh, sinks to the bottom and the warm water is going to be, is going to be higher up. Is that true, Mel? You gotta unmute yourself. You're okay. I'm okay. <laughs> okay, good. I was getting nervous that uh, that my entire belief system was about to crumble. <laughs> so uh, cold water generally is going to sink to the bottom. 
the warmer water is going to rise to the top, but there is a temperature, I have written down here at 38 degrees, so that flips. And the cold water uh, then uh, goes to the top and the warmer water will settle to the bottom. And that's why uh, rivers and lakes and whatnot will freeze top, top down. They don't freeze bottom up, they freeze top down. And uh, the, uh, the advantage of that, as far as nature is concerned, is that there's all sorts of creatures which hibernate in the bottom of a lake or a river or just beneath the, uh, the sand or the dirt at the, uh, the bottom of a lake or a river. And if rivers and lakes were to freeze bottom up, all of that life would die uh, over the course of the winter. Uh, by freezing top down, in most instances, that will allow there to be a layer of water. The warmer temperature will allow the animals or the creatures to be able to survive the, uh, the winter. And if they were to, uh, to suddenly die, that would be a huge disruption to the entire food chain. So the very fact that that switches over at a particular temperature in order to, or which allows all of those hibernating creatures to be able to survive the very cold winter. So that's something which indicates plan and purpose. It's difficult to imagine that something happening randomly is going to do that because it has to be a particular sequence in order for this to work. And if the sequence is disrupted in any, in any way, so then that would uh, cause a, at any point that would be a disruption of the entire uh, process and things just would not uh, be able to, uh, to work. So a lot of things such as that, the recycling of the water in nature and all sorts of things which occur, all of them indicate a plan and purpose. And if one is going to be an honest judge rather than a lawyer, one could look at that. You don't necessarily have to conclude definitively that there is a God as we perceive it, but certainly one would have to uh, uh, arrive at a conclusion that there are way too many coincidences and way too many things which fall perfectly into place indicating plan and purpose than, the, the, than not. So from those, and again, you could attend some sort of discovery seminar where they go spend hours and hours discussing types of quote-unquote proofs, but all of them are indicators that there is plan and purpose and that there is a being which decided that this is how the universe is going to, is going to run. Okay, now where we uh, now picked up in terms of this topic is, so the idea that Akash Baruch doesn't have a physical body like we mentioned from Yiddao, that there's no image of a body which God has, nor is there any actual body which God has. So that element of God's existence, that I think is, is well known. But there is another part of that, which is the fact that God also doesn't exist in time. God is outside of time. Now, it's a corollary because only those things which are physical are going to be subject to time. Those things which are not physical don't really exist in time. Two plus two equals four isn't a time-related function. It's just something which is. It doesn't have anything to do with time per se. But um, we don't uh, go ahead and say, we don't emphasize that, the fact that Gosh is outside of time. And the question is, Yaakov Weinberg, uh, who, uh, as we've quoted many times, and he, uh, he wrote or he gave a series of lectures on the 13 principles, which uh, a student went ahead and uh, compiled and put into a, into a book, into a safer. So he wonders, why is it that, when, that the idea that God doesn't have a physical body, that's something which is well known, and that's something which we emphasize very strongly. 
and the, but the fact that God exists outside of time and cannot be confined into time, that's something which is not as well known or not as well emphasized. And he wonders why is that so? Why is it that we make such a, we uh, place such a strong emphasis on the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't have a physical body in any way, shape or form. And we don't emphasize to the same degree the fact that God exists outside of time. And he says, he points out that there's a fundamental and profound difference between uh, somebody who mistakenly believes that God is physical and somebody who would mistakenly believe that God exists inside of time. What is that uh, profound and fundamental difference between those two ideas? So he says that as soon as one uh, uh, arrives at the conclusion or uh, erroneously believes that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a physical being, he has physical characteristics. So we all know from experience that those things which are physical could only exist in one place at one time. So as we know, uh, some of us more recently than others, but we know from our school days that as long as the principal doesn't see what you're doing, or as long as the Rosh Hashiv or your Rebbe doesn't see what you're doing because they're somewhere else, you can get away with it. If the Rebbe is not going to be at Seder one day, so that means he'll never know if I was at Seder, so I don't have to go to Seder because he's at a chasna, and if he's at a chasna, he can't possibly know what's going on in, in the base Medish. The rabbi is in quarantine for a couple of weeks, so he has no idea whether or not people are attending Minyanim, they're not attending Minyanim. There's no way to be able to, for him to be able to trace that, because if he is in location X, by definition, he cannot be in location Y. And if somebody were to believe that God is physical, that means that they could escape God. And that is something, once one believes that one could escape uh, God, so then that is going to undermine the entire authority of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, his Torah, the whole concept of reward and punishment. It's even possible to, uh, to uh, it even undermines the principles of reward and punishment. Because if God cannot be in two places at the same time, so he may miss the fact that I'm doing a particular mitzvah and I may not get credit for it. Or he's going, as we mentioned, he may overlook the fact that Navera was committed, or I may think that I could hide from God and do a Navera which is beyond his sight. And that's something which will undermine one's entire relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that point has to be emphasized very, very strongly, the fact that God does not have a physical body. But if I were to believe that God has some sort of spiritual characteristics and therefore God is confined in time, so I still can't escape, escape God's, uh, uh, God's authority. Anything which uh, my, my entire perception of things is within time. And uh, as long as God is going to be everywhere within that timeline, so then there's no escape. So the fact that I may erroneously believe that God... Uh, of God's uh, existence in time, that's not something which lead to undermining HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, uh, authority over me. And therefore, this is something which we don't emphasize to the same degree, and that's why it's not as well known of a principle. But uh, that is something which, uh, and therefore, uh, it's not going to be emphasized uh, as strongly. Okay, now, with that uh, knowledge, uh, we still have difficulties, we still have to reconcile 
uh, many references, many passages in the Torah, which seemingly <coughs> indicate to us that God does exist in time. And that is, <coughs> the difficulty is, is that if we say definitively that God does not exist within a timeline, so that means that God does not change. That means God is at a consistent rate uh, from the beginning of Torah to the end of Torah, and God is not going to change because, as we've said, uh, change is a function of time. So if we say that God doesn't exist in time, that means that he's not subject to change because change means at one moment it was like this, and then a moment later it changed and it, becomes, it became something, uh, something else. So if that's true, so how do we under... Your hand is up, Mel? Yes. Yes. How does tefillot work? Oh, we're going to get to tefillot. You're, you're about three steps ahead of me, but we're going to get to that. Uh, we're going to get to that. So first, we're going to pose the, uh, the problem as far as the Torah is concerned. And let's say the sin of the Egel Hazav, the sin of the golden calf. So clearly, the Torah tells us that God was angry. God goes uh, makes a strong point of emphasizing that, uh, that God was angry at, the, at that point. And that means that the fact that when the sin of the golden calf occurred, that meant that God became angry. So that means that the moment, or let's say the day before the sin of the Egel Hazav, God wasn't angry. And then when the Jews go ahead and manufacture the Egel Hazav, God becomes angry at that moment. So seemingly God is reacting to an event which is taking place in time. In that event, the very terrible sin of the Egel Hazav that creates a change in God, he went from his calm state to his angry state. So how are we to understand exactly what the, that means that God became angry? That implies that there was a change which occurred based on an event which occurred uh, within time. Similarly, if we go backwards in the Torah a little bit, by in the generation of the flood. So the generation of the flood, when God looks at the world and he sees all of the terrible um, uh, behavior uh, and uh, disrespect that people have for one another, stealing from one another and not to treating one another properly. So the Torah relates that God regrets the fact that he created the world. So regret also is, it seems that number one is, it's a change that before and God did not feel regret or remorse. And suddenly he's looking at the world and he is feeling regret or remorse. And on top of that, his regret is the result of something which is taking place in the timeline within a particular time in the generation of Noah, not the generation before, not the generation afterwards, but specifically what was happening in that generation causes God to feel regret or remorse. So how exactly we understand how an unchanging God can become upset and have remorse or regret for having created the, uh, the world. That is, uh, that is a, uh, something which requires explanation. And now we get to, uh, to Mel's uh, point. Uh, we also have to understand how exactly does tefillah work? We approach God, let's say somebody is ill, or let, let's go, we'll get to ill later. Uh, a, a minute ago, before I dove in Marv, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu had decided I shouldn't be a millionaire. Evidence is I'm not a millionaire. And then I dove in a good Shmoness, I, I dove in a good tefillah at Marv, and I asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please, I need lots and lots of uh, money. I have lots of uh, things which I have to, uh, to pay for. 
And God says, oh, you know what? That was a good tefillah. It was sincere. I see that there's a need which actually exists. I'm going to make him into a millionaire. And then on my way home, I go ahead and I buy a Mega Millions a lottery ticket and I win the, uh, the Mega Millions. So that also would seem to indicate that before Marv, I wasn't deserving of being a millionaire. I daven sincerely. And now God said, okay, now I will approve the request for a million dollars for the shaffles. And we will go ahead and we will give them the winning Mega Millions lottery ticket. So it also would seem to indicate that there was an event, thank you very much, Ralph, that there was an event which took place in the timeline, which now changed God, changed his mind. And he changed his mind from uh, uh, um, determining that I should not be a millionaire to determining that I should be a millionaire. So all of these things, all of this, all of these are indicators of the fact that God seemingly must exist in time and events which happen within the timeline have impact and change God. They make God angry. They make God feel remorse. They make God decide that Shaffle is going to be a millionaire. All sorts of changes which take place that all points in the direction of the fact that God does exist somehow in time and that events which happen in time influence and change God. And this would seem to uh, defy the principle which we are, the corollary of the principle which we are discussing in that God has no existence within the dimension of time. So how could there be any change to God and how could the events which occur, how could the, uh, how are we to understand that? So in order to understand this, not the, perhaps not the only way to understand this, but one of the, believe it or not, the easier ways to understand this is to turn towards our Kabbalistic sources and our Kabbalistic uh, works to go ahead and uh, 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 enlighten us. And I uh, apologize ahead of time for the, uh, the pun, but to enlighten us and to explain to us how exactly this, uh, this works. And one of those is Rav Moshe Cordovero is his name, the Ramak. And he goes ahead and he answers all of these questions by saying that the way we need to understand God's existence and all of these seeming, uh, seemingly uh, indicators that God's existence it, uh, occurs within time, and he responds to events which, are, uh, which happen in the timeline in our physical universe. So he said, he uses the, uh, the example of light. So light, as we perceive it, it doesn't have any color just pure light, which is the light bulb above your head. You look at it, that light which is coming down doesn't have a color to it. It's just what we call light. You may be able to, you know, physics-wise, you may know that there are different colors which exist within light, but just, just use the example of light. So light itself has no intrinsic color. But if you go ahead and you shine a light through a red glass, so on the other side of that, thank you very much, Arnie, for that light behind you. So, the, uh, so as a result of the uh, shining through a red glass, so the light on the other side, it appears as if there is red light. Or if you go ahead and you put a blue filter over a light bulb, so now it's going to appear as if there is blue light which is entering into the, into the room. Now, we know that the light actually hasn't changed at all. The, the light itself remains without color and remains unchanging. The only difference which is happening over here is that if you're on the other side of that red filter or you're on the other side of that blue filter, it will seem as if there's a red light which is being shined towards you or there's a blue light which is being shined toward you. 
towards you. But that's just the perspective of the one on the other side of that red or blue filter, but it has no effect. The, the light itself hasn't changed, uh, hasn't changed at all. So therefore, in a similar way, so God himself is unchanging. God is like that colorless light, that the, the, the intrinsic uh, light, which doesn't, uh, nothing is going to be able to change the appearance and the color and the character of that light itself. But what God did, and this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu does with, for example, the Yud Gimel Midos of Rachamim, the 13 attributes of mercy, is what this essentially tells us is, is that God uh, set up a series of filters which exists between his pure, unadulterated uh, existence, which is that pure light over Arnie's left shoulder, and the way it's going to be perceived, we who are on the other side, like we are on the other side of the filter, where we see the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu coming through one of these filters, which we call HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attributes. And uh, at times, so depending as we're going to discuss, so at times the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu will come through this filter, at other times it will come through this filter, and at another time it may appear as if it's coming through a third filter or fourth all the way through 13, many different filters which, which exist. So what we see in terms of, from our perspective, that God was calm and then he got angry at the sin of the golden calf, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself didn't change. He remains that pure, unadulterated, uncolored light. But what happens is, is that different filters are now going to exist between where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is and where his light emanates from and our perception of that light once we're here on earth. And that is all that really changes in the universe is the filter, but it's never a change to HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. And we who are on the other side of the filters, we see it as if changes are taking place, but it's not really a change to HaKadosh Baruch himself. Now, once we know that there are filters there, so now the question is, what determines lens God's light will be reflected through? How exactly does that, how do, how do those lenses get shifted? How do they get moved over? And what's going to determine whether it's going to be a lens of chesed, whether it's going to be a lens of din, whether it's going to be this attribute of mercy or that attribute of mercy. So how exactly, do, uh, how, how exactly does that change? Who's in control of those filters? So the Ramak, Rav Moshe Cordovero says that we are the ones who are in charge of that. We, meaning mankind, we, meaning Klai Yisrael primarily, so we are the ones who are going to be able to determine which filter is going to be dominant in the world at any given time. And that's the way HaKash Baruch Hu, that's in terms of the different levels or different universes which uh, exist between HaKash Baruch Hu himself and where we are here on earth so in all of those different levels are going to be different lenses and all of them are going to be ultimately under our control. And the system which HaKadosh Baruch Hu set up, which is going to shift uh, the different filters uh, that, uh, that exist between Hashem and us. So that system is a phrase, it is a system which we're familiar with. I just don't know how many of you have thought it through to this degree. But that's the, uh, the system which we call Mida Keneged Mida. Mida Keneged Mida uh, literally translates as measure for measure. But what it means is, is that the way we conduct ourselves here on earth, 
we as individuals, we as a community, we as a nation of Klal Yisrael. So the way we conduct ourselves is the way is going to determine which filter is going to, is the, is, uh, is going to be uh, uh, in place, allowing the light to go through it. So therefore, uh, if we act compassionately towards others, so that's going to shift over the series of filters, and that's going to allow Hashem's filter of compassion to be the dominant filter, and therefore Hashem's pure light is going to come through that filter of compassion, and that's going to infuse the world in a sense, so that's going to give us the perception as though HaKadosh Baruch is acting compassionately, because that's a filter which we put in place. Applying it to, let's say, the generation of the flood, so in the generation of the flood, so people denied God ex- God's existence. So what happens when you have a, an entire, ge- an, almost an entire generation of people who deny God's existence, treated one another disrespectfully, show no concern or compassion or care or love for others. So God goes ahead and he reflects that exact thing back, mita kenegamita, and Hashem says, you know what? If you guys don't care about one another, I'm going to put, or I'm going to allow the filter to go in place, which would indicate to you, which would give you the impression is if I don't care about your lives, and therefore he allows for a flood to take place and to wipe out almost all of mankind. And that is the the perception that we have and the way it's described in the Torah that God has regret and remorse for having created mankind. That is the result of the way mankind are going to perceive God because mankind put that particular filter in place, which gives us the impression that Kosh Baruch Hu doesn't have a care or concern for, uh, for mankind. And if you think about it, this system, this Mita Keneged Mita system, which allows us to put different filters in place. So this is the most, it's an unbelievable system. Because in a sense, what God has done is he's given us the responsibility to control our own destiny. By our behavior, we control which filter is in place and how the light is going to be filtered through that. And that's going to determine, in a sense, again, it gives us this unbelievable control or perception of control that we dictate as if we dictate to God how he should behave. So that if we want to invoke God's mercy or God's compassion, what we need to do is we need to go ahead and uh, behave compassionately and mercifully towards others. And in doing so, that shifts the filter in a way which is then going to allow more compassion and mercy to enter into this world. And if we don't do so, if we behave, let's say, similar to the generation of the flood, so what's going to reflect back to us, sort of like a mirror, but reflects back to us is the light going through that filter which is going to be something which is cruel and uncaring and lacking compassion and, uh, and all of that, uh, that, that good stuff. So that is part one of the, the system which was, was set up. So that's Rav Moshe Cordovero's idea that Baruch was set up a system of filters and each filter allows the light of Hashem, the pure light of Hashem to enter into our physical universe uh, appearing differently. And we individually and collectively, we are going to be the ones who decide which filter is in place and uh, how that uh, the light of HaKash Baruch is going to be perceived. Chaim Velazhin takes it to a second step. 
famous idea, I think, from the Nefesh Achayim. He looks at as sort of, I think, the, uh, the muscle that I would give, the parable that I would give, is a reverse marionette. So marionette says, you know, the puppeteer, I guess, is the person. So he controls the strings on the puppet. And the way the, uh, the puppeteer moves his hands as he's holding that, uh, those, uh, the, the pieces of wood which have those strings. So he determines how the, uh, how the puppet is going to move around. Rukhayim Volazhin says that all of us, in a certain sense also, are connected to strings. And what happens is, is that depending on our behavior, whether we're doing mitzvahs or whether we're doing averas. So we have, if the, we use that muscle, we have a string which is connected to those filters above. And not only do the filters, deter, do we have the ability to determine which filter is in place, which filter is going to be dominant, but we also have the ability to decide how wide the opening is going to be and how much light is going to be allowed to enter. So you can have a very narrow opening which is only going to allow a small amount of light to be entered to to, re, to go from God to reach us here in the universe, or you can open up that circle very wide. And if you open up that that circle very wide, then you can have a lot more light is going to be able to uh, emanate from God and enter in, into our universe. And obviously, the more light there is, the better off we are. The less light there is, that's going to be darkness. That's why Gullus. That's why exile is always characterized as darkness. Golis Yavan, for example, uh, Hanukkah, which was not uh, too long ago. So Hanukkah, the, the Greek exile, is characterized with Choshech. Choshech from the very beginning of creation. Because that was the time where, according to Rebchaim Velazhin, the filters which allow, which determine how much light is going to get from God's side of, the, of, of existence to our side of existence was very narrow. So the world seemed very dark during that uh, time. We, uh, who are experienced, have only known for ourselves Gallus. So we also live in a time where the amount of light which is entering into the world is very limited because, because of that. And there are circles on top of circles on top of circles, and different people have uh, greater control over more of those filters or less of those filters. Those who are great tzaddikim, they're in better control of the filters and how to move them around, manipulate them to allow more light into this world. Those who are more distant from God have perhaps uh, uh, less impact uh, on, the, on the filters and which one is going to be dominant and which one is going to be, uh, uh, which uh, and how wide the circle is going to be. But that's the way that, uh, that Ruchayim Volazhin and Rav Moshe Kordavero explain these ideas. There's a series of filters, one which determines which trait is going to be dominant. And then number two is we also determine how wide or narrow that opening is going to be in terms of how much light is going to be able to get from Hakash Baruch Hu's side over to, uh, to our side. So when we swing back around to, uh, to Mel's uh, question, as far as davening is concerned, so in davening, we're not trying uh, to uh, affect God in the human sense. You could go to your boss, you could go perhaps to a spouse, you could go to a parent or to a child, or you could go to a friend, and you could try and change their mind about something. You say, hey, why don't we go out for dinner? They say, I'm not interested. Come on, it'll be great, it'll be a lot of fun, it'll be delicious food, and you may, may be able to change their, uh, their mind. When we approach Hashem in prayer, even when we have a very specific thing which we want from Him, 
We want refuah, we want good health, we want parnasa, we want to be able to earn a good living, we want to be able to pay our bills, we want this, uh, this uh, virus to be able to go away. Whatever it is that we approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu for, what we're not trying to do ultimately is change his mind and have him reconsider his decision. That's a, that's a fallacy to think that what we're trying to do is we're trying to get God to change his mind because changing his mind, as we said, means that God exists within time. And if God exists within time, which would mean that he's changing, so we're hoping that something that we do could impact God, could somehow change God. Really what we're trying to do is through the effort of tefillah, we're trying to manipulate the different filters which exist. That's why I kept emphasizing the fact that we uh, impact filters on a personal level as well as a communal level or a national level. How Klal Yisrael is standing is, is going to be different than how any particular individual is. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to manipulate the filters. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to widen the size, the opening of that filter in order to be able to allow more light into the world. And the expectation is, is that if I could get the right filter in place and I can open it wide enough that the right amount of light is going to come in, then on our perception side of things, it will seem as if God has changed his mind and he has now deemed it worthy that I should be a millionaire. Amen. But what we're not doing, what we're not actually manipulating God or changing God. I didn't hear amen from any of you, but it's because you're muted. I understand. What we're not trying to do is we're not trying to go ahead and manipulate or change God. What we're trying to do is we're trying to, through this Mita Kineged Mita system, we're trying to affect which filter is in place and how much light is going to be able to get from one side of the filter to the other. That's really what we are trying to accomplish with, uh, with, with, with all of that. So that is, as far as how we understand um, God's existence within time, the challenges uh, that uh, we have understanding that God does not exist within time, and then how we understand really how the, uh, the, uh, the world uh, functions. Now, um, let's do one last idea in this. Um, and we'll go back to something which we talked about uh, uh, a number of weeks ago. And now we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective. So we had said that the easy way that we understand the uh, references in the Torah to God's hand, to God's eyes, to God's ear, we'll have a number of references in the Parsha this week. It struck me as I was looking at the Parsha already. Uh, at the end of Shlishi, have my Chomashir. So we have in the last two Psukim, so we have four different uh, very interesting verbs. Maybe we'll get a drush out of this uh, uh, for the Shabbos. But the Pasuk says, HaKadosh heard their cries. HaKadosh remembers the covenant. Vayar Elohim, God sees. Vayed Elohim, and God knows. So God is awfully busy in these two Pesukim. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. So all of this is the precursor to God uh, bringing Moshe Rabbeinu into the picture to go ahead and save Ka Yisrael. So we understand those things as anthropomorphic references. We know what it means to see. We know what it means to hear. We know what it means to remember. All of those are human traits. And we say that we who are familiar with those human traits, we go ahead and we apply them to God as if 
God could see, as if God could hear, as if God could remember, all of those things. And we take the human condition and their anthropomorphisms means we're going to apply them to God, even though it's really inaccurate because God, as a, as a non-human, as a being, can't actually have any of those traits, but we apply what we perceive as human and we apply that to God. But there's a deeper explanation of that idea, which actually flips it over on its head. It looks at it from the, the opposite direction. And this comes from the Balatanya, the, uh, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in his work, on uh, his philosophical work in the, in the Tanya itself. And he says that he, he explains that uh, our general perception of anthropomorphisms is really coming from the wrong perspective. It's coming from the opposite direction. In other words, in the classic sense, which is really associated with the Chovas Halavavos, for example. But we say that, as we mentioned, that we use human terms and apply them to, uh, to Hashem in order to facilitate our understanding of God. Like we talked about, God said it's intolerable that uh, people should not be able to associate with God. So the lesser risk is to use human references to God rather than being more accurate but then running the risk of our saying that I can't possibly have a relationship. There's no such thing as having a personal relationship with the Pythagorean theorem. It's just something which is, it's a truth, but it's not something that you have a personal relationship with. It's not something that you feel the need to, um, you know, send birthday cards or New Year's cards or shoot out a quick text or a WhatsApp message or something to, uh, to a Pythagorean theorem. It just is. So rather than perceiving God as just is, God uses the anthropomorphic references so that we can associate with him. The Balatanya says that the truth is, is that our perception of things here on earth are merely a reflection of what actually exists in the spiritual worlds. And he says, he uses the Medrash, I think a well-known Medrash, that says that there's no blade of grass on earth which grows that doesn't have a spiritual source or a spiritual soul in heaven, which makes it grow. So in other words, where does the energy come for that blade of grass here in the physical world to be able to grow? It doesn't come from the sunlight and the nutrients in the ground and the water and all of that. The ultimate source for the growth of that blade of grass has to emanate from a spiritual source in Shemayim. That's where things ultimately come from. And what we see here in terms of the growth of that blade of grass is just an expression of that spiritual force, but it's not something which actually comes here. It, come, it, it emanates from here in our physical universe. It's something which begins in the spiritual sense. And therefore he says, if there's such a thing in the physical world as an eye which can see, or there's such a thing in this physical world as an ear which can hear, it's not as if the origin of eyes and ears begins here in the physical world. Really, physical eyes and physical ears with the capacity to hear and to be able to see, they have to emanate from their original source which exists in the heavens. So when we talk about God's eye or God's ear or God's capacity to hear or remember, what really we mean is, is that there's a spiritual source which exists in the heavens, which exists with God, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. In the reflection of that, or the expression of that, we see here on earth of that spiritual force, that spiritual energy, as an eye which could see or an ear which could hear. 
So it's starting over there. And what we see over here is just the growth or the expression of that the same way we see physical grass growing here on earth, but it's connected to a spiritual source, which is directing that growth up in, uh, up in Shemayim. So in creating the world, so as we talked about, God went through a process of contracting and concealing, the concept of tzimtzum, of contraction in order to be able to, uh, to create. And, and as you go from the spiritual eye, which God has, and it goes through all of those different filters and all of those different universes, all the way till down here, what we see as a physical eye in its capacity to see is a mere expression of what actually exists in Shemayim. So God's eye in God's ear is the purest form of eye in ear which exists. And the, the capacity for a human eye to see an ear derives that energy from what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has. So it's not as if our eyes and ears are fundamental and we use that as a muscle to describe God as if God has eyes and ears. It's the opposite. God has this capacity of seeing, this spiritual force of seeing and hearing without even having a physical eye or physical ear. But there's this spiritual force, which we call Vayishma, Vayar, Vayizkor, those four verbs in those two psukim, all of those begin with God and they filter down to us and they express themselves in the manner in which we are familiar. But it's not as if Earth is a starting point, and we, we apply what we see here on Earth to heaven. Really, heaven is a starting point, and we take what we see in heaven, and we apply that to our existence here on, on Earth. And that's the way we should make sure that we, uh, we understand uh, the, uh, all of these references in the Torah, that, uh, that they, uh, they are uh, the physical expression and description of the spiritual forces, but ultimately it's the spiritual forces which are real, and what we see here is just the, uh, the outer, the outermost uh, manifestation of that, or the outermost expression of those, uh, uh, of those principles. So that's what I have to, uh, as a, uh, the, uh, the end of the, uh, the third principle. So uh, I'm done. If anybody has any questions, wants me to clarify, I'll be more than happy to, uh, to do so. Those who are going to, uh, to run to Marv, so... Uh, please run to Marv and make sure to uh, to make it there and uh, get there on time. Um, What's Thursday, the schedule for Thursday? Thursday, we're at the the same schedule. We are doing eight thirty. We are doing eight thirty, and we, we talked about last week. We were going to say do about candle lighting. I'm thinking of potentially a different uh, topic, just because somebody asked me about it uh, this week. Uh, that uh, a child ran over, uh, ran through a neighbor's front lawn. Uh, and put obviously footprints in the snow. And the neighbor was furious saying, I enjoy looking out my window at the nice smooth untouched snow. And now you've ruined my view and was very upset at the child. And the question would, uh, would be, we either we'll do it this week or next week, whether or not uh, there's any sort of responsibility that the child has for ruining the, uh, um, the snow uh, by putting his footprints into the, uh, into the neighbor's uh, front yard uh, snow. He doesn't get mail, this neighbor. He doesn't what? He doesn't get mail because the mail delivery people always walk through the snow. I, I imagine he's probably uh, told his mailman that you go up and down the uh, the path, uh, which I've shoveled for you, and don't you dare go on my uh, my grass. Otherwise, no gift in December. And he has no he has no life whatsoever. I was just going to suggest. I wish this was my neighbor. Then I'd have a place to put my snow. 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. Did, indeed. did anybody see the uh, video of somebody cleaning their driveway off with a with a, a blowtorch? Yes. 